I find it really hilarious when Canadians have been correcting me. <laughs> Just hockey, not ice hockey. <laughs> And welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we have an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie. And I'm Kamala. And today we are talking with Nina Trudeau, co founder and CEO of Nuage Cloud Strategies and CEO of a new company working within the public sector. Welcome, Nina. Thanks so much. So, Lena, you're about to start a really exciting new role. What can you tell us about that? Yes, I'll be starting at the end of the month. An announcement will be coming with a few more details. So uh, I'm sorry I can't share the name of the firm just yet, but I'm really delighted and feel very fortunate to be joining an organization that brings a new kind of capability to government and non-governmental organizations, although the majority of the work they do is in public sector and specifically these days for the U.S. federal government. They're a combination of data analytics, really great talented engineering, and front-end user research design and development work. So more to come on that, but I really think it's the kind of organization that's needed in the ecosystem right now to help government adopt technology more effectively and deliver better services to the users that depend on them. Wow, that sounds so exciting. I can't wait to hear more about that when it gets announced. So Lena, it looks like you've had a long career in public service. Where did you start out? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. And you know, it makes me go back a fair ways. Some of my more recent work has been in the Canadian government helping to stand up the Canadian Digital Service. And just prior to that, in the US federal government, in the previous administration, when we launched something called 18F, the first digital service in the US government, which was modeled after the government digital service in the UK. But my very first gig in government was in Canada, which is where I'm from. And I worked as a summer student in a records office for the city of Ottawa. And then I went from there to working for a city councillor and service delivery at the local level is very real. <laughs> and and very tangible to people who need the services that they depend on. And if we didn't get it right, we heard about it right away. So that was where I got my start. I've worked in both the Canadian and U.S. governments at the federal level, as I've mentioned, and then as well in some of the commercial work I've done, for instance, working at Amazon Web Services. A lot of that work has been focused on helping governments better understand the tools available to them to do the work that they do today and, and to more effectively adopt those tools in service of delivering more effectively and hopefully, but not always, more efficiently, the services that people, you know, whoever they might be, individuals, businesses, we talk about citizens, but so many people that depend on the services or organizations that depend on the services of governments aren't necessarily citizens, but so that they can deliver those things uh, more effectively and, and fulfill, as we say in the US, fulfill the mission, or as we say in Canada, meet the mandate that they've been given. Yeah, it seems like all of the roles that you've done have been really citizen and civic facing. Are there any services that you've delivered that you've been particularly proud of? Yeah, there's a couple that I would mention. You know, it's funny, they're not very sexy. They're aimed really more at building capacity and laying the foundation, kind of working on the real plumbing of what makes better service delivery possible in government. Before I joined the U.S. federal government out of the General Services Administration, I was working at an organization called the National Academy of Public Administration. And I spent about four years there. It's a congressionally chartered nonprofit that operates out of Washington, D.C., that actually not a lot of people know about. But while I was there, one of my colleagues and I co-founded something called the Collaboration Project. And the goal of that project was to bring government agencies together to solve common problems, problems that every single one of these agencies were facing individually when they tried to adopt more what we called at the time Web 2.0 technologies or collaborative technologies. There was a, a lot of interest in really improving the way that government was interacting with people online. And this was back in 2007. So we're going back 10 or 11 years now. I think that was one of the most satisfying things 
that I can recall doing because it brought people together in a very collaborative way with a very constructive perspective to take on challenges that were shared and solve for them one by one. And there was a real tangible sense that in each one of those things that we solved for, it made a real difference in how people in government were able to do their job. So I thought that was really terrific. And one of the best experiences of my life was being able to run a program called the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program. It was a program that was started out of the White House in the office of the CTO, the Chief Technology Officer, who at the time was Todd Park. It was modeled on the great organization and model developed uh, by Code for America, which is run by Jennifer Palka. And Jen and Todd had been working together to develop a model that could take this notion of bringing people with particular skills, technology skills, design skills, user research skills, people who are entrepreneurs, people who are maybe a, a little bit less risk averse than folks that have spent their entire career inside a large bureaucracy like the U.S. federal government, and pair these people with forward-leaning public servants to solve really big, hairy problems. And that was piloted out of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is where the office of the CTO sits, at the White House. But they realized pretty quickly that they didn't have enough capacity to manage the scaling of that program over time and looked over to the General Services Administration, where I ran something called the Office of Strategic Innovation, and spoke with us about transitioning the program over so it would have a much better foundation for scale. And we did that. We transitioned the program over within, it was between three or four months in its entirety. And you can only imagine the things that need to get done during that time frame, from identifying the right funding sources to making sure you have the right hiring authorities at the agency level. There was just a lot of really tough work in the trenches to get that program set up properly at GSA. And the whole team pulled together and worked across a couple of different agencies to do it. The team at GSA was fantastic. And in the end, we were able to extend offers to 43 fellows. They made up the second class of presidential innovation fellows that came on board. And the things they were able to do in only the short period of time they had in their tour of duty through government was just amazing to see. Wow, that's really amazing. It really reminds me of some of what we're trying to do with One Team Gov as well. What you were talking about in terms of what you set up in 2007, that was really, really pioneering. One of the things you mentioned was 18F and how it was based on the GDS model. Do you think you could give us more of a flavor of that? Absolutely. We realized pretty early on in the process of transitioning the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program over to GSA that this would provide a continuously renewable pipeline of enormously talented people who cared about having an impact in the way public services were being delivered. It's a very unique thing. And we knew about the government digital service in the UK. Mike Bracken and the whole team early on were really open with, I mean, not just us out of the US, but a lot of countries that were thinking about doing something similar. And we were watching with a lot of respect and admiration the great work that was going on out of the British government. So we really wanted to be able to leverage that model, tweak it a little to make it a bit more sustainable in the American context. In the U.S. federal government, which is, I mean, just enormous, the size of some of these agencies is, you know, really something to behold. And a lot of the federal agencies have distinct sources of funding or a particular governance model or set of committees that they report to in Congress that give them a fair bit of independence. It's nice sometimes to think that federal governments are centralized and that someone like the president could tell each of them what to do and everybody would fall in line. But in reality, day to day, that's not quite the way it works. And so we recognized that we really didn't have the mandate, particularly out of the General Services Administration, where we were operating this thing to tell other agencies what to do, to really put forward a strong centralized mandate. And there was the government-wide CIO who was making great inroads on cloud adoption and opening up data. The president had many executive orders and, and other presidential memos that were setting out the right kind of guidance. But in the end, we realized that our best effort would come from being able to partner with agencies and departments that really wanted to partner with us, not ones that were told to do that. 
And fortunately, there were a number of CIOs and other leaders across government that had particular fairly thorny issues they wanted to solve for and came to the table and asked us to partner with them. It helped as well that the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program started with the premise that not only were we recruiting people to come in and do a tour of duty in the federal government, we were also recruiting agencies to bring their biggest problems to the table and be partners with us in that effort. So because we had this great cadre of people we were working with already across the government, we were able to leverage that and pretty quickly develop a pipeline of meaningful projects to solve. And so that was really the genesis of 18F. It was the first round of Presidential Innovation Fellows that were coming up on the end of their tour of duty. It was a set of agencies that had a particular set of problems they wanted solved, that they needed help solving, and they needed help over a longer, more sustained period of time than simply a fellowship of six months or 12 months would provide. And then in the middle of all that mix, you can throw in the fact that there was a government shutdown. (laughs) And uh, that was in the fall of 2013, I guess it was. And right at the end of the shutdown, when government came back online, we had the failure of healthcare.gov, the website that was supposed to allow hundreds of thousands of people to sign up for healthcare insurance. The confluence of those events are really what made the launch of 18F a success because it turned all the people who might otherwise say no into believers that we needed to try something different. But we wouldn't have had the model if it wasn't for GDS. We wouldn't have understood how to take what was working and how maybe to make some changes for things that we needed to operate a little differently in our context if it hadn't been for the great guidance and help that we'd received from those folks on the early GDS team. That's so good to hear about the support that GDS offered at that time. One thing you touched on there was healthcare.gov, which in my mind is one of the greatest digital failures and then one of the greatest digital turnarounds that I've seen in my career. Do you think you could give us a story about that? It's amazing to me what a group of people who are really dedicated and have the right skill sets and the right leadership, the right top cover can do in a very short amount of time. When you look at the amount of time it took, and you can measure it in years to build up the technology solution that failed, and the amount of time it took, which you can measure in weeks, to actually put in place a working solution that handled scale just about three months later. It's really helpful, I think, to contrast what worked about the latter and what failed in the former model. And there are a number of different points of failure, right? You can talk about the fact that the legislation had specificity in it around the technical solution. You can talk about the fact that the procurement itself took an enormous amount of time and contained that whole traditional way of looking at gathering a set of very complicated requirements over the course of months or years, and then putting that out for competition and requiring companies in the private sector who might know better than we do inside of government how to actually solve the problem we're trying to solve. It forces them into a world in which they're responding to our specific requirements, whether those are right or not, or the best way or not because that's what we've asked for and that's what the rules of the procurement system require. And then having that all implemented by people who pursued much more of a legacy approach to IT that relies on a lot of integration and there's so many different points at which that could introduce risk into the process of building out that solution. It really demonstrated that we needed to do things a different way. I think one of the great things about healthcare.gov is that people in the U.S. did not fail to leverage that crisis. I would really love to suggest that perhaps other governments, especially that of my native country, Canada, might want to do the same thing. If there's a crisis that is demanding action, it's a perfect time to try a new approach and to provide the right leadership in order to make sure that that happens with the right people and skill sets at the table. Moving on from that rather cryptic message, (laughs) I'm lucky enough to know you from working here at the Canadian Digital Service. How did your role come about? Well, that was interesting. So I was working with Amazon Web Services, and at the time I was leading the public sector business in Canada. 
which included government, healthcare, education, nonprofit. It's a really interesting set of mission-driven, service-driven customers. And in doing that, I was interacting quite a bit with the federal government of Canada, and in particular, the Treasury Board Secretariat, which, as you know, is where the Canadian Digital Service is based. For folks who might be not Canadian and not know the Treasury Board Secretariat, for American folks, it's a lot like OMB, the Office of Management and Budget. A lot of policy is set there. A lot of guidance is handed down to agencies. And so there were people working on a a set of policies around classifying data and being able to move more sensitive data to the cloud. A lot of really good work happening on identity management and a number of other issues that cut across all departments and agencies in a government of that size. And that's where the government-wide CIO sits as well. So I ended up working quite a bit with folks at Treasury Board Secretariat and got to know a very small group of folks very dedicated set of public servants who were trying to set up a digital service for the first time at the national level in Canada. And the more I got to chatting with them, the more we kind of came to the realization that a lot of the experience I'd had doing something similar in the U.S. could be very, very helpful in the Canadian context. I really am fond of saying making mistakes is great, but ideally you should only make them once and then you should learn from them. And so rather than repeating that again and again, And this is a theme that I think runs through all the things you're doing at One Team Gov. Why wouldn't we work much more closely together to share information about what worked and what didn't? And for me to lend my experience, however useful that might be for a period of time to help them get up and running just a little bit quicker than they might otherwise have done. Absolutely. We couldn't agree more. So CDS is about to celebrate its one year anniversary. Yay! of which I've been here a couple of months, and we've had lots of great people join in that time. How do you think the organization has evolved? Well, it's certainly grown in number. What are we, about 60 now? So certainly a number of things have changed. In some ways, we still feel small, and 60 is not an enormous team. It only allows us to take on so many different delivery projects at a time. So there's definitely a constraint there relative to the need. But in some ways, when I look back to a year ago, it's really just a difference in kind, not just in degree. What I mean by that is at the very start of the process, when CDS launched, it was folks who had come together from other parts of the Canadian government. And there were very, very few people who had come into that organization from the outside. That's fine for the early days. That's great in a number of ways, but it doesn't really give us the breadth or the depth of experience in the team that we had wanted to be able to deliver at really a world-class level on some of the service delivery redesign work that needed to happen. So it was a great start, but with every new person that joined the team, whether they were skilled in technology or bringing user research skills to bear or design, Or like you, Kylie, being able to bring a really experienced and mature and robust approach to product management, true product management. Each one of those capabilities as they came on board to the team made an outsized difference in what we were able to deliver and the impact we were able to have. Because I think one of the lessons I've learned in the work that I've done is that all of this is very, very experiential. It was experiential as we matured the team for us internally, but it's much more so for our partners in other government departments and agencies who haven't worked this way before and don't really understand until they do it what it means to work in a true agile fashion, what it really means to be iterative, what good user research looks like, and what good human-centered design really looks like. Those things are easy to grasp once you've seen them play out, but until then, hard to imagine. And for that reason, you know, until we had some of those capabilities on board, we didn't really start to hit our stride. And I think that's where we are now. I think where we are now is really hitting our stride and being able to demonstrate the kind of service delivery that could truly stand up as an exemplar project and serve as a lighthouse for others who are trying to do similar things. You mentioned hitting our stride, and I really think that's a good way of describing it, actually. Since I've started here, I've seen that delivery capability build at CDS, and I do think we're now in a really good position to start doing some proper, exciting, big transactional services. So really looking forward to that. 
We were, of course, really sad to have your leaving drinks last week, which were brilliant. And I will keep most of the conversations uh, to myself and not share them with the audience here. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I can say confidently on behalf of the whole of CDS that we're so grateful for everything you've brought to our organization. I wanted to ask you, what have been some of your highlights? So the team is, to a person, not only really skilled in the capability they bring, the background they have, but just a set of wonderful humans. It's been an absolute pleasure to watch this team grow, to get to know the people who are on board. I want to stay in touch with every single person. They're just unbelievably delightful, kind, interesting humans. You know, I've been part of a lot of teams. That's really hard to do. To be able to say that down to each and every person, that's true. It's a huge accomplishment. That's been amazing. It's been lovely to see Aaron come on board, Aaron Snow, as the new CEO. I guess he's uh, a couple of months in now, and the impact he's had on the team, given his experience in technology and in the digital services here in the U.S. I think as well, I would say, being able to see some of our partner organizations One organization in particular, who shall remain nameless, (laughs) moved from a place where they felt like they couldn't talk to some of their users, some of their core constituents, because somehow it would be unfair to others they weren't able to talk to, to having that light bulb go on where they realized how important starting with users is and working backward and really understanding what that means. Those moments are really tough to describe, and they're very, very motivating for me to see that play out. The good folks we've had come over from the UK, we've had some folks come up from the US, some of them Americans, some of them returning Canadians, and having them meld into the team with the great core of Canadian public servants. It's just been lovely to watch. And I expect really great things from the team over the course of the next year or so, knowing some of the projects everyone is planning to take on. They're meaty, they're meaningful, they will allow for real impact at scale. And that's super exciting. Ducking outside of government for a moment, you've mentioned a couple of times that you worked at Amazon Web Services. Amazon is a notoriously tough place to work at. Can you give us a flavor of what that was like? I spent about three years at AWS and I learned an enormous amount. There's so much about the culture there that is admirable. If you haven't checked out Amazon's leadership principles You should take a moment and just Google that and they'll come up right away. There are 14 of them and they're really, really impressive. They start with customer obsession. They end with deliver results. And in the middle are some really wonderful things that reflect a culture that is constantly trying to pioneer new ways of doing things and take some of what they call at Amazon, the undifferentiated heavy lifting that is common kind of drudgery across all of the work that you would do and automate that so that people can spend their time working on higher order problems and solving for more complex things. I think there's a lot there to admire. If I could encourage them to do a couple of things, one of them would definitely be around diversity. There's a real need to increase the amount of diversity, particularly in leadership roles and in technical roles. And that's no different than a lot of the big tech companies right now. But that's something they really need to redouble their efforts on. When I look out at big tech firms, I would really want to make sure that we don't lose our humanity and our real soul in the work that we do in these organizations. I think some firms have gotten that a bit more right than others. Your point on increasing diversity at the top of Amazon is really interesting. Would you have any tips or ideas about how they go about solving that? There was a great quote that I was reading recently, and I really apologize because I don't remember who said it. And it went something along the lines of the way to hire more women is to hire more women. And one of the things that Aaron has said a couple of times now is just got to remember that the way to do the right thing is to do the right thing. And so sometimes that translates into things like not interviewing for key roles until you're sure there's a diverse pipeline. In order to do their best work, people have to feel psychological safety. The data bears that out. The data also shows that diverse teams produce better results. 
And so ultimately, it's in the long-term interest of all of these large organizations and tech firms in particular, but they're not the only sector where this is a problem, that's for sure, to not just create a more diverse environment, but to create an environment that's welcoming to people who might be in the minority on their team in whatever aspect of diversity you might be considering at the time. There's a lot of work to be done, and particularly in some of these industries where I've heard many women say they just don't feel like they can raise a family and work at a company like this over the long term. I see the amount of burnout in people who work really hard and where more is continually demanded. And I think of the fact that there's obviously a lot of business pressure to hire people and hire them quickly. But when we keep going back to the networks of people we know who look like us, that's really not the kind of long-term thinking that some of these companies pride themselves on. So I would just say it's hard and it's hard for a reason, but it's worthwhile. And in the long term, it pays off. Just touching on Amazon Web Services, it's notoriously hard to get government to adopt cloud technologies. And I think this is like a global experience. Why do you think it is so hard? There are a couple of different reasons. First of all, getting good at something like running critical workloads in a cloud environment doesn't happen overnight. There are a number of skills that need to be developed over time that allow organizations to get better and better at that. And so I think initially, it's about starting. It's about getting started. And I've seen organizations and leaders in technology groups talk about their fear of you know, embarking on that journey without sufficient knowledge. And what if they make a mistake? In the Washington, D.C. area, we talk about the Washington Post test. There's a fear of failure that would end up in the press. It's a fact of life working in the government that's very easy for the media to pick up on failures of any kind and point to them in the press. So I think that's legitimate. What organizations are learning to do and what the most successful adopters of new technology have been able to do is understand that that is a journey and the learning happens over time. And so starting with small workloads that are less critical and experiment and failing early in the process when it isn't really a failure, you know, on a massive scale, it's a very inexpensive form of failure that produces better learning. And then iterating over time is really the way to get that done. And building skills, you know, government has to invest in their people training over time is required. It's, there's no way to cut that out of the process and think it isn't going to bite you at the end of the day. And there's a lot of that learning that's experiential, but there is some technical skill, a particular kind of functional skill, if you're talking about something like user research, that people have to learn. And so I would really encourage a much more concerted effort upskilling the great public servants we already have in place not just assuming that we need to hire people with new skill sets alone. This is something that I think we do at our peril because we end up setting up an us and them dynamic that isn't healthy for anyone. Our public servants around the world, and this is true of every government I've worked with, are a national asset. They're a real treasure and we should invest in them. So that's one thing I would say. I think as well, though, when you just look at the massive amount of budget that goes into maintaining the legacy environment, and the fact that all of our systems and processes, funding to procurement, to the cycles with which we manage our technology, the legislation that's in place around security and resiliency of our critical infrastructure, it all supports a legacy model. And so we have to be thinking about this in a really systemic way. Definitely, we should be holding up exemplar projects and showing what's possible and evangelizing those because it gives people, you know, the sense that in a real measurable way, uh, there's a better process out there and we should be following it. But as well, there's a lot of work we have to do on the policy side, on the legislative side, on the skill and capacity building work to help address this at a much more systemic level. I think too, you know, A lot of tech teams that I've talked to inside of government, a lot of folks in CIO shops are really nervous that somehow this new technology and not just cloud, digital as a whole and every aspect of it is somehow going to make the work they've been doing irrelevant and potentially put their job at risk. I would just say, you know, I've never met yet an IT budget that's been large enough to do all the things that people in the department wanted, or an IT staff that's been big enough to take all that on. 
And so I would just really encourage people to look at the way this is actually played out. And I can't say that I've ever seen in the move to cloud, a whole wave of layoffs. What I see more often is people developing new skill sets that make them not only more marketable in the marketplace generally, but also increase their job satisfaction because they're working on more interesting problems to solve. So if that message could get out, if leaders, CIOs and business leaders across the government could start to get that message out, I think it would be very helpful. That's so true. I think we've seen that across a number of countries and lots of places that we've all worked. And definitely here at CDS, we've had a very small cloud win this week, but progress is super slow. So definitely agree that the message around doing more interesting and meaningful work, often my reflection in terms of working in new technology is that we're not changing the fact that someone has a role to play, but we're changing the nature of the role. And often that is about automating the things that computers should be doing and freeing people up to do the stuff that only humans should be doing, which is absolutely the direction we should go in. You've mentioned cloud and we've talked about some of those challenges. Are there any other parts of public service which absolutely drive you nuts? (laughs) Definitely, there are a number of things that drive me a little crazy. I would say the first thing that's front of mind for me is a question of leadership. And here's what I mean by that. I'll use the Canadian context as an example, based on what we were just talking about, the notion of cloud adoption. And I look at the way some folks have parsed out technology tools and capabilities as something that is to be sparingly given. And to me, that's a failure of leadership. I think leaders need to trust the people that they've put in place and rely on them to be able to do their jobs. And if that's the case, and they do trust the people who are in place, we have to give them the tools they need to do their jobs. And that includes allowing them to experiment with new tools to see whether they might be even better able to help them get done what they need to get done. I just don't think that's the posture of the government in Canada right now although it is in places. I look at the great things going on at the Department of Transportation with such a forward-leaning CIO there. And and there are really good examples of that happening across government. There's great work and top cover coming out of the government-wide CIO's office at Treasury Board Secretariat. But at the same time, I see again and again, I talk to people on the front lines of service delivery, and they tell me they just don't have the tools to do their job. And we're not talking exotic or expensive tools here we're talking some of the basics. And so I really put the challenge out to folks in government to turn that model around and allow for a lot more of that adoption and experimentation. Another thing that is always really interesting to me is the way that governance works, the way that stakeholder management and governance works. I think governance is really important, but it's also true that when you get too many people in a room responsible for making a shared decision, you lose some accountability along the way. To me, a couple of really good goals would be to make sure that in any decision-making process, in any governance model, the people making the decision have clear accountability and responsibility, and that those are aligned. They have the skills and knowledge they need to be deciding the things they're tasked with deciding. And I think sometimes with regard to technology adoption, that's, that's not quite true. One of the things that I think we need to do better in government is do a better job of allowing people to move much more fluidly in and out of government. Because I think working inside of government an entire career, particularly one government, doesn't really give us the diversity of experience we need to be effective public servants. And it's one of the things I'm most excited about with One Team Gov, the ability to bring all of these people together from around the world who are trying to solve common problems and leverage the combined experience of a much larger and more diverse group of people is going to be game-changing. And I think we should all, as governments everywhere, commit to figuring out ways through our HR rules, which can sometimes become needlessly restrictive, allowing much more fluid movement in and out to give people that experience. I think it's very beneficial. Mala and I have both experienced with moving from UK to another government. It's not easy and we really had to create that opportunity ourselves. And definitely if some of our UK colleagues were more easily able to flow to different countries, we definitely would. Maybe we should make that a session on the 16th about piloting a program that does just that. 
I'm in. Let's do it. I'm totally in as well. And also, I remember talking to our old boss, Dave Rogers, about 24-7 support, which is obviously something that we need to provide for our services in the UK. And I was like, can I not just go and run this out of New Zealand? I mean, it's perfect. So yeah, we could get even more benefits if we had a kind of global government service rather than maniacally focused on our own area. We've talked about leadership and you mentioned it there again. I'm interested, what does good leadership look like to you? My own philosophy of leadership is really much more of a servant leadership approach. I think leaders should lead by example. I think they should work with their team, be prepared to roll up their sleeves right alongside their team to get things done, understand that decisions need to get made and not every decision is going to be the right one. And that's okay if you leave yourself open to changing a decision that was made if the facts warrant it, if it's not working out. So taking that kind of open and iterative approach being able to move things forward quickly, but leaving room to learn from the experience, to learn from the team, and to pivot when necessary. Those are just a few examples. I'm a big fan of being kind to people. There's this myth out there that I just don't get, that you have to really be able to be super aggressive and super competitive and and a little bit cutthroat in order to get ahead and be a leader and have the corner office and grow your level of responsibility. And I just don't buy it at all. I think it's complete bullshit. (laughs) So you mentioned that you're back in Washington, D.C. How does it feel to be properly back on American soil? I've actually sort of been splitting my time for the past while. And that was true when I was at Amazon too, when I was running the Canadian business, I was sort of half my time in DC where my wonderful husband lives. So I like hanging out with him. And so that feels nice. But being back up in Canada and spending as much time as I have there over the past couple of years has been so great. I think Canada's poised to do some really amazing things. It's a lot of opportunity ahead of it. And as a nation, you know, just the value system the set of principles that Canadians and the Canadian culture put front and center, I think are so important in the world right now. It's felt really good to be up there and to be part of that, to see the focus on feminism as an important part of where we need to take society and not seeing it as some sort of dirty word, which I think happens a little too often south of the border, unfortunately. That kind of thing has been really refreshing. The inclusiveness, the multiculturalism on display, I think all of it has been terrific. The humility and a real earnestness to the way Canadians approach problem solving that I've really experienced working with folks in the government over the past several months that I'm a big fan of. So I'll miss that. I won't be spending quite as much time up there. And I know I'll miss some of that, but hope to be able to pattern that kind of behavior where I am. And and there's a lot of really great work going on in DC right now. I know it's easy to hear a lot of the negative stories and become anxious and concerned about that. We should remain very vigilant and very engaged in where we as a people want to take our democracy and what we expect of our leaders. So please don't think for a second that I don't think that's important. But at the same time, I look at all of the great public servants who are working in the trenches right now in the government in a tough environment, trying to do really good work. And there are great things happening here. So I'm looking forward to being able to engage at those levels a little bit more and to help people tell the stories of the good work that's going on. That's really great to hear. And I think that knowing that people like you are over there in Washington makes me feel marginally better about what's happening at the moment. Speaking about Canadian things, on your Twitter bio, you said that all opinions are your own, except those about ice hockey, which are fact. As Brits, what do we need to know about ice hockey? That there probably isn't a more exciting game anywhere on the planet than hockey, which is just hockey, not ice hockey. (laughs) I'm a huge hockey fan and have been for a long time. My team is the Montreal Canadiens. So everyone can feel a little sorry for me right now because they're going through a pretty tough time and to do some serious restructuring of the team. Fast, it's physical, it's, um, it's exciting to watch. Once you start watching, it's hard to stop. 
Although I will say as well, you know, I've been really getting into some of the World Cup matches and for any Brits who are listening, my heart and soul is right behind UK. I hope that works out well. I know you guys are a bit anxious about this one for good reason. So um, fingers crossed. Thank you. I mean, I won't say thanks for me because we have England in the World Cup and not Scotland who, of course, are my home team. So rivalry aside... Just to also say, I found it really hilarious when Canadians have been correcting me in saying hockey instead of ice hockey, because as a huge Olympics fan myself, we in the UK are super proud of our field hockey team. So that for us is hockey. (laughs) But thank you for the education nonetheless. Too funny. Well, and listen, I apologize to anyone who's listening who's been cringing over my improper use of UK, England, Britain. I mean, I know they all mean different things and I just haven't gotten them straight in my mind well enough yet. So apologies to everybody. I didn't mean to be insulting and I promise I will learn that and be more appropriate in the future. So we've got a few questions to round us off today. Can you recommend for us a Twitter account that we should follow? Apart from One Team Gov's Twitter account? Of course. (laughs) I'm going to give you one that's just really small, but I love it. It's really funny. It's called The Beaverton. It's a Canadian satirical Twitter account slash online magazine in the vein of The Onion, but very, very Canadian. So I would send you towards that. Wicked. Thank you. And of course, apart from this one, a podcast? I am so lame. I haven't been listening to podcasts. The podcasts I do listen to when I when I have the time are very food related. So I love The Splendid Table. I actually love anything from NPR. When I have time, I listen to The Splendid Table because I love to cook and I just love to hear what they have to say about cooking on that show. But knowing you were going to ask me this question made me go and research a whole bunch of really interesting podcasts. And then I realized I couldn't be inauthentic and say that I have a favorite, you know, when I just have only listened to one or two episodes, but it's given me the bug. So that's a good thing. Glad to be of service. So finally, one book that you could recommend. I think because of the work that I do, the book that I keep coming back to again and again, this is so geeky, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's called Managing the Professional Services Firm. And it's a book that I just find over the course of my career, I've read and reread and keep referring to. But also, there's another book I'm reading right now that I'm really loving that I'd like to give a shout out to. It's called Moments of Impact, How to Design Strategic Conversations that Accelerate Change. And I'm really loving it. I'm really only in the beginning of it. Definitely worth a read. Great. I'm actually going to throw a final question in here that we didn't account for. But considering our adventures with bourbon last week, (laughs) what's your favorite bourbon and can you recommend one? My favorite bourbon is called Blanton's. I really love it and I highly recommend it. If you can get your hands on a bottle of Pappy Van Winkles, that's supposed to be the best. I'll admit that I've never tried it. It's very, very hard to get. It's made in such small patches and the grandpappy, the one that, you know, the one that everybody sort of holds out as the best of the best. I know people that have bottles, but I haven't been able to avail myself of a tasting quite yet. So I would recommend if you can get your hands on it and you have the opportunity and the free cash flow to be able to do that, do it. But Blanton's is amazing. So definitely a good choice. Brilliant. We'll do that for bourbon o'clock as an alternative to gin o'clock on Fridays. So that's great. Love it. Lena, thank you so much for chatting with us. We're really excited that we're going to get to see you again at One Team Gov Global in a few weeks. Can't wait. Really looking forward to it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you both. An absolutely incredible interview, Kamala. What did you think? I thought that Every single answer sounded like a keynote or a TED talk. It was so amazing. I almost didn't want to ask the next question because her answers were just so good. Yeah, for sure. Listening to it back, I also find her voice really calming. (laughs) Fills me with confidence in the future of public administration. Listen to it all day. So what were your key takeaways? So many. I mean, it was such an in-depth interview that the breadth of stuff that we covered was incredible. For me, we're public servants, and it was so, so interesting to hear the backstory of her work with the White House Presidential Innovation Fellows. And then when 18F was created, and that moved over to the General Services Administration, 
kind of mythological. And when you have people like Jennifer Parker from Code for America and Todd, who was the CTO at the White House at the time, those people who just have amazing skills, but they're also culturally less risk averse than your classic public servant. And I think the idea of pairing people like that, who come from a different background and who have such experience to bring to the table with people who are already in government is a really great way to think about it. Because in the space that we work in, you've got so many incredible options of people to recruit externally, but we're not going to create that sustainable change unless we are upskilling and motivating and enabling existing public servants. And for me, the way that they set that up and the role that Lena had to play in creating the conditions for that success was so important. Full disclosure, when Lena mentioned the CTO of the US, I think we both fully wanted it to be Megan Smith, mainly because we've both met her when we were at Lesbians Who Tech and we're low-key her biggest fans. Excellent CTO and the White House should be sorry to have lost her. Megan, if you're listening to this, you're more than welcome to come on to the One Team Gov podcast. I loved what she said about people doing tours of duty in government. And I thought it was interesting when she talked about Amazon Web Services and I was asking her why it's so difficult to get cloud into government. And she talked about the fact that a lot of people in government are quite risk averse because they're scared about jumping into the unknown and how a lot of that is to do with the fact that there just isn't necessarily the training or investment in public servants. And actually enabling technology is hinged a lot on the training of people who are already there. What I really liked about her answers were that they were very people-centric as opposed to this technology will solve X or Y. Definitely people-centric. And also what she spoke so well to was that concept of taking on what she called thorny problems. So not only are we centering around humans and human experience within the government, but the real value of structuring teams and projects and product development and the work of government around a problem to be solved in society is something that you just don't hear that often. And I think a lot of it is to do with the way that departments and existing public servants, what are they motivated to achieve? And when you have people like the Presidential Innovation Fellows who are used to working across boundaries and not acknowledging the silos that they have in what is, as Lena said, absolutely huge administration. What that can do is if you point people onto a specific problem and solving that problem, rather than about meeting their own policies or their own mandates within their individual areas, if you can corral people around a single outcome, that seemed to be some of the real success of 18F in terms of the agencies that they brought with them and developing that pipeline of meaningful projects. Yeah, definitely. And I really liked when she talked about using crises to create change. For disclosure, I'm an American politics nerd, and I had already totally forgotten about the government shutdown and, to some extent, the failure of healthcare.gov. So much has happened since then. What I liked was when we were asking her about the failure of healthcare.gov and then the turnaround of that, that she talked about using these crises and these big problems that are really public and that end up in the Washington Post as leverage to really create change in government. And I think that often we just don't have the people or the mandate to make that happen after the fact. Yeah, for sure. One of the things I absolutely loved, which probably only our Canadian listeners will get the inference from, was when she said something along the lines of a really veiled reference to a similar technology failure that's happening here in Canadian government and said, you know, perhaps if we took the approach that they took for healthcare.gov rescue, where they brought in some experts from the outside, but also pairing those with people within the government who are motivated for change and motivated to solve what was a very high profile crisis. We could do a lot with that. And yeah, I'm looking forward to getting some feedback from Canadian friends as to, to what they made of that. And I'll say no more. Yeah, if any of our listeners or Twitter followers want to out whatever government agency that was, that would be awesome. I have no idea. I'm in New Zealand, so go for it. What did you think about what she said about her approach to leadership? Lena's had so much experience of working in leadership roles across government and also private sector, obviously. And I was so, so interested to hear her views on that. And something that was really heartening 
was around what's probably the typical model for how to do leadership. And I think this is also a nod to the fact that she's been very US based, but that old school model of what a successful business person looks like, where you are very authoritative and you have a lot of confidence and In some cases, that often can go into some verging on aggressive behaviours and it's about winning and it's about being better than other people. And what really came through in Lena's answer was that in her experience, you don't have to be like that. And this comes back to a lot of what we've heard through One Team Gov and especially in Kit's interview about different styles of leadership and the fact that you don't have to be that kind of aggressive, macho person to make progress and to lead teams. Yeah, I totally agree. And I thought the fact that she said that one of the most important things about being a leader is being kind. is just such a stark contrast to some of the depictions that we see in TV and also, let's be honest, in real life of leadership. And it really did remind me of talking to Kit and her views on empathetic leadership as well. I'm secretly hoping there's another podcast for all of the senior leaders in government to talk about their approach to leadership. And that is all to do with being kind and empathetic, because I just see that as a real trait at the moment. And I hope it continues. It's interesting. I was reading just yesterday, the new leadership strategy for the UK government. There is some wording that's been added in there recently about being empathetic and building empathy with the people that you work with and with the people who use the services you build. So there is, I think, a trend towards that now. And the more traditional behaviours that Lena spoke to and that we've been reflecting on are not as successful anymore. And I don't think that everyone believes that you have to work to that model. So that was great. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose it comes back to what she was saying about trying to attract the best people. People are most influenced by the direct managers and the people who lead them. And that's what makes them decide whether they want to stay or go. And if we want the best people in government, we're going to have to have the best leaders. And to a certain extent, that's why I'm really, really pleased to see people like Lena and people like Kit and everyone we've spoken to in government really showing that. What did you make of her answer to the cloud question? So this is one that you and I battle with in our daily work lives about getting people to feel comfortable with using cloud technology in government. It was really interesting hearing her perspective working at Amazon Web Services. So that's really at the heart of the biggest company dedicated to cloud technology and how she really believed that in order to get people to adopt cloud and government, we basically have to train them to use the products that Amazon Web Services have and train them to use cloud technologies. So I thought that it was interesting that she perceived it more as a kind of training and support problem as opposed to a technological problem, which I think is what we often come up against when we're in those meetings talking about cloud. Yeah, I think you're right. We do have a responsibility as some of the technologists within government to not only just deliver our own services and the way that we want to deliver them, but to talk about why that's important and why cloud isn't more of a risk and it's in fact less of a risk than having a server under your desk or in your basement. Also, thank you for clearing up that hockey confusion at the end. I was so pleased to have someone who actually watches the Olympics to work all of that out. Field hockey is awesome, and I would encourage you all to try it just as much as Lena championed ice hockey. Have you gone out and bought that bourbon that she suggested? I actually haven't, but I was very lucky the other week when we had Lena's leaving drinks just before we headed to the pub. Lena had a bottle of that bourbon on her desk. So we went round and a group of us had a few sips and celebrated her time with us here at CDS. And it was absolutely delicious. So I can say plus one to the bourbon recommendation. And perhaps we can extend the traditional One Team Gov kit gin o'clock on a Friday to include bourbon. I think let's expand our remit. (laughs) Yep, we're all for diversity at One Team Gov.